So Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptised with water, but in a few days you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Um, I've been down memory lane this week. Just, just join me, would you, to the 1980s. The 1980s, I spent some time, well, quite a lot of time actually, watching a TV programme called A Question of Sports. Do you remember it? Um, here's some old graphics from the, it's 30 years old now, if not more. A Question of Sport has been through a few iterations in recent decades, new presenters and whatnot. Um, it, the basic premise is this, half an hour to test anybody's sporting knowledge. Two teams of sports people, men and women, there's a captain of each team, there's a quiz master in the middle. And uh, my favourite round of all, bottom right hand corner, it would be an event and an example from the cricketing world is, what happened next? So imagine the scene if you've not seen the TV programme where a, a cricketer, a bowler is coming in to bowl the ball and then the freeze frame is enacted and you don't know what happens next. Imagine there's a tennis player, perhaps at Wimbledon, the ball's up, Steffi Graf, the ball's in the air and she's about to serve, she makes contact and then a pigeon appears uh, in shot and then it's stopped. What happens next? Or there's a horse and a rider coming up to the most almighty looking uh, jump what happens next? And so on. You, you get the picture, don't you? What happens next? So the camera, the event is paused as the shuttlecock is travelling 100 miles an hour <laughs> or something like that over the net. Can you remember, do you know what happened next in the sporting event? And then the teams would get together and then they'd get it wrong or get it right. They were always funny events of what happened next. It doesn't matter if it's a sporting event doesn't matter if you're watching a film and it's paused. The most irritating three words of all when you watch a, a film, it happened in Back to the Future 1. It came up at the end, to be continued. Or is there a TV programme, The A-Team, or a Tonto, and uh, the, the Lone Ranger, to be continued. Um, you want to know what happened next. Luke wrote a gospel. In the Gospel, he says about the Lord Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection. And then on the screen, if you look at the first four verses of Luke and the first four verses of Acts, 
in the first verse that you've got at the top of your Bible, the Acts chapter 1, you've got what happened next. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. That word began is so important because Luke's gospel that you can see on the left-hand side is Dr. Luke carefully investigating the eyewitness account and evidence for the life, the death, the resurrection of King Jesus. And then in the book of Acts, he says, this is what happened next. I want to tell you about... uh, the birth of the church and the life of the church and the triumph of the church. I want to show you what happened next. And so, verse 1, I've just told you what Jesus began to do and teach. But what did Jesus continue to do and to teach? That's the book of Acts. And how did Jesus do that if he died and was raised to life on the third day again? He does it through his church. And that's what the whole of the book of Acts is all about. It's two books, Luke, Acts, two DVDs, two, uh, you won't understand that if you're under 30, a DVD is a disc that goes into a machine, you know what I mean? Two parts of uh, a two-volume story, but it's the same story about the person and the work of King Jesus. Central to uh, what happens in the book of Acts is verse 9 of our passage. That, that where's Wally and where's Jesus? So helpful, so clear. Where is Jesus now? Luke, who wrote the gospel and who has written Acts for us as well, says this. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid, them, hid him from their sight. I want us to think about the importance and the implications of the ascension of Jesus Christ. Jesus died, he was raised to life again, He uh, was then ascended, he was taken up into heaven, but there's a 40-day period of time between the resurrection of King Jesus and the ascension, the raising up again, not from death to life, but from life to eternal life in heaven, where he's seated now. And that's got some pretty big implications for us. Let's think about the importance of it and the implications of the ascension. Now, what do we mean by when we say Jesus ascended? Jesus ascended. That's a a word you don't use very often. You may say, if you're of older age, I'm going to ascend the apples and pears. I'm going to go up the stairs. I'm going up to bed, if you're in Cockney rhyming slang. Jesus ascended. Well, uh, up on the screen, you can see a picture of a well-known church. Uh, Any pointers? You can guess what that is? Westminster Abbey, says someone at the back. Good knowledge. This is Westminster Abbey. Since 1066 and all that, every king and every queen of England has uh, been coronated at Westminster Abbey. Since the 14th century, that's happened on the coronation chair. Happened in 1953 last time for Her Majesty's coronation. You can see a picture just uh, dimly on the screen taken on old proper film. That's why it's a little bit poorer quality perhaps. It's a, a spatial word. To ascend means to go up. The king or the queen literally goes up a few stairs, but the signif- a few steps rather. But the significance of that it, it is just huge. In, in, in going up a few steps and sitting on the coronation chair, the king or the queen's relationship to the nation and to her subjects is changed through the ceremony. They've gone up. They've they've been elevated and sat in this significant place. Look at verse 2, look at verse 9. Verse 2, 
until the day he was taken up into heaven. Verse 9, he was taken up. This phrase, taken up, taken up. God has done something. God the Father has received back his Son from the earth to heaven. Spatially, locationally, Jesus has changed places. Yuri Gagarin, when he was taken up uh, literally in a spacecraft and looked, what did he say famously as he looked back at earth? He said, I looked for God in the heavens and he was not there, says Yuri Gagarin. Well, Jesus, verse 2, verse 9, was taken up and now he has a new relationship with the universe. It does not say that Jesus has been located just north of Pluto. He's not somewhere uh, mythical like the North Pole. It says we can be very certain where Jesus is located now. Jesus is in heaven and he has a new relationship with the whole of the cosmos. When Jesus descended, when he came down from heaven to earth, he took upon himself a limitedness. He took upon himself a human body. He was limited for 33 years. He understands in his human nature all the struggles that we face, all the weaknesses that we are afflicted with. Jesus knows and understands our limitations and our pain. He understands joy and splinters in his fingers and sorrow and sadness too. Jesus lived on earth a a perfect life. By that I mean he lived every jot and tittle of the law of God. He was perfectly righteous and pure in his mind, in his activity, in his actions. And he died a sacrificial death and he was raised to life again. And because he defeated death, he is without limit. He received a new body on the third day as his father raised him to life again. And that means he's no longer bound or limited to one place or one time because now he's ascended to the heavens. Whilst he was on earth, Jesus Christ, fully man, fully God, chose to be limited to his humanity. It's completely God, completely man. It doesn't make sense in our minds. They're too small to understand such a wonder, but it's a truth. In history, Jesus existed, fully God, fully man, but he could only be in one place at one time. The resurrection changed his limited body so now he could eat he was still human now he could be touched put your fingers through my wounds but also there is a differentness to his body he could appear in a locked room I can't wait to do that to listen in on my kids what they're saying about me and that sort of stuff but when he was ascended something unique happened when he was ascended is now no longer limited in his humanness to one point and one place at one time. He has a unique and a different and a glorious unique and special relationship with the whole of space and time. They no longer constrict him anymore. So where is Jesus? Not wearing red and white stripes. He's in heaven and he's ruling and he's reigning at his father's right hand. He's not taken up into the heavens. He's taken up to heaven. The Bible gives us another picture of a throne to help us understand the reign of King Jesus. He is at the right hand of the Father who sits on the throne eternally and perfectly and majestically. 
because Jesus is now in heaven, he can take everything that was his on earth and make it and release it, as it were, to everybody everywhere on earth. What do I mean? On earth he was our shepherd. On earth on the third day he was proved to be our vindicated substitute. He was our mediator as he died on the cross on Good Friday. He in his body provided a sacrifice once and for all. That's all limited to his actions on earth, but now he's in heaven. That can be applied to everybody throughout the universe. He can take the, the benefits that he won as a perfect man, perfect God, a human on earth, but now they're applied to everybody. All the benefits and glories that he did at a specific time, at a specific place, outside the city walls in Jerusalem and in a perfect existence for 33 years can now be implied by his spirit without limit. Without locational limit of time and space. Now this is pretty hard to get your hand around. It was for Mary too. In John chapter 20, verse 16 and 17, Mary, Mary's struggling because Jesus has spoke about the ascension. If I do not leave you, I cannot send the Holy Spirit to you. And Mary's holding on to Jesus. She's grasping on his arm probably and saying, I don't want to let you go. I love you so much. I want you to remain in this intimate relationship with me. And Jesus is saying, Mary, Mary, you don't understand. If you hold on to me, you will lose me forever. If you let me go, then no bars on windows, no dungeon, no, uh, no decay, nothing that's going to be destroyed. Nothing will be able to limit me. I will be with you in the deepest dungeon. I, no, no chains, no boundaries I will be unable to cross. If you let me go and if I ascend into heaven, I will send my spirit and there's nowhere that you'll be able to get away from me. No dungeon will be too dark or too deep. No suffering will be able to separate you from me. My power and my presence will be released throughout the world, but only if I'm not limited by time and space. Only if I return to heaven and I'm seated at my Father's right hand. Mary, you don't understand. If I ascend, if you let me go, you will never lose me says Jesus to Mary. Now what does that mean? The ascension is pretty important. Hopefully you can see that. If we hold on to Jesus, actually we'll lose him. Like Mary, if we let go of him, we'll never lose him. Let's think about the implications of the ascension that Jesus is now at his Father's right hand. Look at verse 11 with me, please, of Acts chapter 1. This same Jesus that you see leaving is coming back in the very same way that he left. Jesus did not evaporate. He did not kind of levitate. He did not just disappear. What do I mean? There's a hymn. There's a hymn written by John Newton that we sing sometimes. It's an old hymn. It's called How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds. And in that hymn, there is a verse that says this, Jesus, my shepherd, brother, friend, my prophet, priest, and king. And the Bible uses my prophet, priest, and king, three categories from the Old Testament to explain the work of Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus was an incredible teacher. He spoke with authority like no one else. He was the prophet of God who spoke with authority and power. 
He was an incredible priest. When you got near to Jesus, you got near to God. And he claimed to be the way, the truth and the life. He's a prophet and he's a priest. He's also a king. He led in a way that was unique. He led in a way that was liberating. But when he ascended, you see his, I'm going to make up some words, his profitingness, his priestingness and his kingliness applied in a new, unique way throughout the world. Here are three books. Acts shows us how God's work continues through his church. Hebrews shows us how the work of Jesus is applied to us as he intercedes in the heavenly realm for us. Even this morning, the book of Ephesians is so clear on the kingly rule of Jesus that there is a plan in place that everything works for our great eternal good because King Jesus is sat at his father's right hand. The implications of the ascension are massive. Here are three. So Jesus is prophet. Our teacher has gone. Mary and the apostles and the disciples would be saying that. He's gone to the heavens. He's gone to heaven, rather. He sat at his father's right hand. What a teacher he was. What unique uh, authority and power he had. Nobody spoke like that. So how, Acts chapter 1, if you've just told us, Luke, told us about how Jesus began teaching, how will it continue? It says in verse 1, Luke mentions Theophilus. He's written to him once, we don't know a lot about him, but he, he lived in an urban society. He might be one person, a wealthy person, or it might be symbolic of, of a group, God lovers, that's what the word means. So he's written to the church. People differ on their opinion. But in verse 1 it says, in my first book I wrote to you that Jesus, what Jesus began to do and what he began to teach. But now, by implication, he's saying Acts is how through the church Jesus will continue to teach. Surely, it says in Ephesians chapter 4, you, however, did not know Christ that way. This is an example. How will the work of Jesus continue? Acts, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20 and 21. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Here's the Apostle Paul who we'll meet in uh, Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9 for the first time. And he went and visited a church in Ephesus when he became a Christian and he planted the church and then he wrote to the church to encourage the church. And he says, you heard him. How did they hear Jesus when Jesus never went to Asia Minor? He never visited the church in Ephesus. And yet Paul doesn't make a mistake when he says, literally, you heard, not of him, you heard him. How does that work? If you're a Christian, friends, and you tell someone about Jesus Christ, you are continuing the work that Jesus began, says the Apostle Paul, and says Luke and Acts. You are continuing the work that Jesus began, and now he commissioned through his church to continue. Look at verse 6 of Acts chapter 1. The apostles come and they say, will you now establish the kingdom, Jesus? Will you do literally what you've been speaking about? In verse 8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Literally, you could say in verse 6, hey, Jesus, will you? 
And then Jesus responds in verse 8, no, 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 will you? How is the work of Jesus going to continue? Is Jesus going to stay and remain? No, he's been ascended, he's been taken up to heaven. So how is the work of Jesus going to continue? Through his church. Will you? I'm going to empower you to teach. I'm going to empower you to share. I'm going to empower you to encourage. And every time you point to Jesus faithfully, uneloquently, but humbly, in a real way, you're doing my work. You're continuing my work. You will be my representatives, verse 8. You will be my witnesses. And it's not just to Jewish people. It's not even just in Jerusalem. It's to the ends of the earth. Don't think nationally. Don't think racially or culturally. My kingdom is for everybody. Be my witnesses to the end of the earth. Continue my work. Continue my prophetic ministry. I will empower you. I will embody you by my Holy Spirit. You are my witnesses. When a boy or girl, when an adult's mind is illuminated with the power of the gospel by the Holy Spirit, with the good news that Jesus died, that he was raised to life on the third day, that he's seated now in heaven, that he rules and reigns, when you speak that word of truth, you are continuing the work of Jesus. How's the ministry going to continue? You're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, three quick implications of that overriding statement. How does the work of Jesus as prophet continue? Here are three things. You will be my witnesses, so be really humble. Be really humble. Do you realise what verse 8 means? Verse 8, you will be my representatives. You will be my witnesses. Verse 8, I'm ascended. And now, says Jesus, I want you to be my hands and my feet. I want you to be my mouthpiece in the world. When people see you, do they see me? When people see how you relate to one another, when they look in on church life, do they see a faithful representative of my love, of my mercy, of my kindness, of my generosity? When people look at you, do they see me? It's no good if you say one thing and you act in a different way. Are you my witnesses to a watching world in a faithful way or an unfaithful way, but you are witnessing nevertheless? You are representing me. You are my ambassadors. That's all in this verse 8, this great responsibility. So we better be humble when it comes to continuing the work of Jesus. Is your conduct Jesus-like? Is your character increasingly Jesus-like if you're a Christian? Are your priorities Jesus-like? When people look at you, when they listen to you, do they see and hear Jesus-like words and priorities? That's how the work of Jesus the prophet continues. You better be humble. But also, flip side, you better recognise the authority that you have. There was a man called George Whitfield. In the 18th century, he had a great booming voice and he was a magnificent preacher under God. Once he was teaching the Bible, he was preaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus and woe betide the person, someone fell asleep. Someone fell asleep as he was preaching to thousands of people. 
And so George Whitfield, who's standing on this wooden platform, lifts up his leg and whacks his leg down, makes a really big noise. And then he said this. The person woke up. <laughs> I did mean to do that, said George Whitfield. If I'd come here in my own name, if I'd come here with my own message, you can take your reason every so often pop open an eye and maybe listen to me, what me as a babbler has to say. But I've not come here with my own message, said Whitfield. I've not even come in my own name. I've come in the name of the Lord of hosts and I must and I will be heard. Perhaps the man was more attentive for the rest of the message. It's not about eloquence. It's not about having the gift of the gab. It's not about going and studying and reading books. Every man and woman, boy or girl, that trusts Jesus Christ, that has the Holy Spirit in their hearts, should have the humility to recognise that we are God's witnesses. But also we have the authority to point to King Jesus. And so we must be heard because we're speaking and representing him. If you've got one and not the other, if you don't understand the privilege that you have, but uh, you're speaking in, a, in an arrogant way, or if you're speaking arrogantly, but you don't understand the authority you have, you're in grave danger. You need both humility, authority, but there's a challenge as well. We need to grasp Jesus' mission. Look at verse 6. Jesus spent 40 days teaching the apostles. He's about to leave. And they raise this question, Jesus, are you about to establish the kingdom now? We've been waiting 40 days of teaching this SAS group of ordinary people and they're making some pretty big mistakes still. And Jesus was a very good teacher and they were very thick-headed. They still thought Jesus' kingdom was going to be a political one. Okay, thank you for the uh, tutorial for 40 days, but are you going to do it now? Jesus says no, verse 7 and 8. It's not political. It's not Jerusalem only. It's not Jew only. Verse 7 and 8, it's to the ends of the earth. My kingdom is to the ends of the earth. Available for all people at all times, everywhere. And so Jesus is saying, by my spirit, get on board. The fuel is the spirit for church life, for gospel living and for gospel sharing. And so whether you're flattering of lip or if you think you've got the gift of the gab, be wary of that, be humble, but recognise the authority you have. And look at the scope of the mission of Jesus. It's so much bigger than our imagination. All Judea, all Samaria, to the utmost parts of the earth, Jesus is... Jesus is priest and prophet and king. How does the prophetic word continue? The work continue? Through his church. I mean, think, Jesus did not go to Pilate. He didn't go to Caesar. He didn't go to anyone who could have vindicated him in an earthly sense. Remember, he was before Pilate and he said to him, you could just say the word and you could get off free. Jesus could have vindicated himself in an earthly sense, but he chose not to go to Pilate to clear his name. See, I told you so, I told you I'd rise again. He didn't go to anyone else to vindicate himself in an earthly sense because he wasn't trying to win an argument. 
It says, verse 3, he went to empower his people because he knew his vindication was in heaven. And he went to equip his church to continue his work. Jesus continues his work through his church. But also he's the priest. Really quickly, two quick points. If you go to uh, Hebrews chapter 9, you can see that Jesus' prophetic work continues through his church, but his priestly work continues as well through his ascended son, Jesus. So in chapter 9, it says that Jesus Christ is the once and for all priest who dies for the sins of the world. That's Hebrews chapter 9, chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 7, which we'll get to in a few weeks' time, we'll see Stephen. Stephen, who's being stoned to death for standing firm, speaking to non-Christians about Jesus. And he gets a glimpse of Jesus' work as intercessor, as priest. He's continuing his priestly work as a man in heaven. And Stephen says in Acts 7, verse 50 to 51, I see the glory of God. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then the final stone was thrown and he was killed. Where did he get the power and the presence to forgive those who were throwing rocks at his head? Stephen says, Father, forgive them. Father, I give you my spirit. I trust you. Because he saw at the right hand of the Father the one who was interceding for him. He saw Jesus. They were saying, we condemn you. We condemn you to death. How dare you speak of Jesus being risen? And they threw stones at him. But as he saw into heaven, by faith that he's united to Christ, he's adopted, he was acquitted, he's beautiful to the Father, that was enough for him. And then he was in his presence as they took his life from him. Be practical. If Jesus is now seated in heaven at the right hand of the Father on high, continuing his priestly work that Hebrews speaks of, do you feel a failure this morning? Do you feel you don't measure up to your own standards, to the world's standards, whatever measuring stick you're using, to God's standards? I'm just a failure. Do you condemn yourself? Have others condemned you this week? Do you feel that God is condemning you? To the degree you understand the verdict that you already receive by faith in Christ that will liberate you, that will free you from the bondage of other people's approval, from you hating yourself. If you're in Christ, you're a new person. No more condemnation, says the gospel. Why? Because Jesus Christ is ascended. He didn't disappear. There's a man in heaven whose name is Jesus. He stood for Stephen and now he's seated for us, but he pleads for us. His wounds plead for us. So no matter how you view yourself, Jesus Christ looks on you and he sees you as beautiful. He sees you as lovely and he approves of you. Last of all, Jesus is the ascended king, prophet, priest, king. Jesus is the ascended king. The seat of the right hand of the father, the seat of the right hand of the person in authority was the the seat of the prime minister. The person, the, the chief executive, the one who got stuff done. That was not Donald Trump's slogan idea. Jesus Christ is the Prime Minister of Heaven. He's the one who won the victory. And he's the one who does the bidding of his Father. 
In Ephesians chapter 1, it says, There is one in heaven who has constructed a plan. Everything is in the plan. And Christ is the point of the plan. It's a, it's a Greek word called boule. It literally means a blueprint. Everything in history is on the blueprint. And the Father who sits on the throne and the Son who sits beside him, who's reigning on his behalf and enacting his plan, does so for our great and eternal good. Everything is in the, pl is in the plan. In heaven, Jesus, the man who loves you, who knows your struggles because he is a man, a person who loves you to the uttermost, who knows how you feel, who knows what you're thinking. He loves you and is for you and is working everything for your ultimate good. The Bible says everything. Back in February, we were in the book of Joseph, oh, sorry, the book of Genesis. We we're looking at the story of Joseph. You know the end. Genesis 50, verse 20, all things for your ultimate good. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Joseph could see that. We know the story now. We know that all that he's been through, and yet he could say, that was your intention, but God's intention was far greater. If Joseph could see that back then, we this side of the cross, where man did his worst, and yet God had his greatest victory of all of history, should we not be saying that with even more confidence? Do you know the joy that the ascension brings? Christ is the ascended Christ. He's the ascended prophet. He's the ascended priest. He's the ascended king. He's ruling and reigning. Think about that until the joy comes.